Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clerkus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, and Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They've been around for a very long time and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up and accept it or move to another planet. Because in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good for business. And pandemics? As if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, the only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. History tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means of oppression and tyranny than by any other means. Oppression and tyranny, folks, money, profits and propaganda, call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning, you are being gaslit. So remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Yeah, in a better mood today, you know, up, down, left, right, everywhere in between. Good days, bad days. Worse days, better days. That's life, folks. Speaking of life, Life as a private security contractor, as I mentioned before, in a hostile or a war-torn zone, well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good and some not so good. All in all, though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. And while private security contracting almost knows no bounds, uh, speaking specifically in terms of region um, or operations, uh, but specifically um, as it pertained primarily to me, the Middle East, from Saudi Arabia to Turkey, from Libya to Greece, from Israel to Pakistan, lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the ancient ones, myths, legends, Folklore? Maybe. And where it all began? Who knows for sure. But if you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know it all centers around what we refer to as the MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region. That's right, the Mediterranean. So, what is it like being a private security contractor? Well, I suppose for everybody, it's a little different. Uh, there are a lot of similarities, and some would say, you know, it's really the same. It's the person. And, you know, for the most part, that's probably not a bad summation. But uh, a lot of it depends on the actual region, 
the time as in the you know what era are we in are we in a state of war are we in a state of proxy wars um or are these private wars it depends on where you're where you're working who you're contracted with uh and the nature of the contract i mean there's just an awful lot of variables uh and you know what what sort of support do you have you've heard me say that no man is an island unto himself and it takes a team and that is true uh so support is is really really key um and the more support you have uh generally speaking the better you do uh but we can and probably some or many who are listening that have been there will understand what i'm going to say next which is we've probably experienced at least once support getting so big so fat that the lard almost overwhelmed to the point that it was easy to get distracted fat dumb and lazy and and we've seen that Uh, so it's a fine balance it's a tricky balance but for the most part again support you need support Um, it takes a team and even if the only person you ever see or hear is that one lone operator out there he or she is not alone they do have a team Regardless of the number of people that comprise that team, there's a team out there supporting them. So whatever you've heard or read or seen, even if it is true, there was always people supporting that person or persons out there on the ground, in the air, in the sea, whatever. It takes a team. So if you're one of those support personnel and you're feeling left out or maybe you don't think you're getting enough praise, um, Rejoice, because look, at the end of the day, you should know, if you don't know, that the people out there getting all the glory, all the glory points, they couldn't get diddly squat if you weren't there to help support them, okay? Even the guys in the DFAC, I mean, think about it. If we didn't have a place to go eat, we'd be eating MREs morning, noon, and night. And if we didn't have those, we'd be out foraging and hunting for our own food. Now, you can do that in states of war. But imagine having to do that morning, noon, and night, okay? So, that said, and back uh, kind of on track, what's it like to be a private security contractor? Again, it it varies. It depends on where you're at, man. There's an awful lot of similarities. Uh, You know, if we're talking private security contractor on a contract with, uh, as some friends of mine refer to it as Uncle Sugar, Uncle Sam, whoever you want to call it, uh, because different different government entities around the world the contracts that they put out that uh, they differ again it depends on who you're working for and where you're working uh, but life as a private security contractor uh, whether it's in kuwait iraq afghanistan israel libya i mean just you know syria life as a private security contractor uh, the 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 life stuff outside your job outside doing your duty outside whatever it is you're paid to do um a lot of things that people forget about uh uh, something that my wife mentioned to me uh just before i went over on my first contract we were in the kitchen she was cooking something in the oven and i was opening the door to check something or maybe she opened it maybe that's what it was and I forget the temperature she had. It was still heating up. She, she motioned me to come on over and, and put my head down there by the oven. And I went, "Woo, that's hot. She goes, yeah. She goes, that's what it's going to be like over there. <laughs> 
Okay. It was a it was a psychological ploy attack that she was trying to take to try and get me to think about going over there. Okay. But the point was not lost on me, and to this day I still remember it because when I got off that plane, I think I mentioned this before, and we're talking right around midnight, and I walked out of the airport and went, Woo! <laughs> I mean, we're talking June, July, you know. Uh, so it uh, even in that part of the world, um, you know, as you get further north or south of the equator, because that's pretty much where the Middle East is. It, it's in that latitude area where the, the, the sun's rays are, bam, I mean, they're at its height. Okay, so even in the evening, it is hot. So you might go from 120, 130, 140, and on a quote-unquote bad summer, maybe even hotter in the daytime. Okay, and at night, it might get down to 100, 110, or 115, but it feels good. Once you're there and you've acclimated, it feels good. Because you're no longer in the direct sunlight. You know, it's kind of like the same thing when you're driving in your car, your truck, whatever. And the sun is out and it's beating through the windshield. And you're like, "Woo, it's hot. But it's not really. I mean, you look at the temperature and it's like, well, it shouldn't be that hot. Well, the sun is magnified. Same sort of kind of thing um, over there in the Middle East. So, you know, throughout the year, as you get into the quote-unquote winter, you know, it's not as hot. And at night, it gets even cooler. But... Uh, so life as a private security contractor. So that's one thing you got to keep in mind, folks. Um, you know what it's like over there, whether you're sleeping or you're eating or you're working or you're fighting or doing whatever you're doing. You're doing it in these super hot conditions. And if you're close to the water, uh, say within one to three, maybe five miles of the uh, Arabian Peninsula out there, of those large bodies of water, uh, if you're out on the uh, coastal areas, uh, then you know it, it seems even worse. So imagine 110, 120, 130 degree temperatures, maybe hotter, 140, with that humidity, relative or otherwise, you know, 80, 90, damn near 100%. So imagine taking a hot shower, climbing out of that hot shower into a superheated room with superheated lights and getting dressed and working in it, no matter where you go all day long, you're surrounded by that. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what it's like. Now, if you get further inland, um, and that, and depending again on where you're at, uh, and and the weather temperatures and and the air streams and all the other stuff that goes into it, it could be three to five. It might be ten miles inland, but at some point, it, it it's it you notice it's drying out and it's not as hot it is the temperature the air temperatures is hot it just doesn't feel as hot because the humidity has been reduced and at some point it's like whoo i mean that dry heat it, it's weird you can tolerate the dry heat it's and at some point you really get used to it and you almost almost come to like it as long as you're not physically exerting yourself too much in it because uh there's a story um when I was in Kuwait and we were searching uh, vehicles and normally when we were searching vehicles, again, it depended on where you were. Uh, but in this particular instance, these were uh, covered tunnels for lack or half tunnels, half shells, long, elongated. Uh, they weren't buried underground. They were top ground and the vehicles would be in there. And, you know, there we had all kinds of physical security measures going on. 
but uh, one day in particular, this is when everything about humidity and exertion and hydration, I mean, this is when it all came together for me, and, and I'm thinking this was like two or three months into it. So we're talking July or August, probably closer to August. And, you know, I'd only been exerting myself for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And, you know, for the most part, it was in the shade. Um, but, I mean, I was sweating profusely. And at that point, that time, I was still wearing cotton underwear. Because, let's face it, uh, most people these days have heard of and know of, say, the, the, the brand of underwear, bought, uh, Under Armour. Now, they're not the only ones, but they were the, they were the first one that most people came to know. So I'm still over there in tidy whiteies and boxers and T-shirts and one thing or another. Because, you know, back home in Washington State, Pacific Northwest, uh, for the most part, that's pretty much all you need. Um, and it feels good uh, under most normal conditions. Now, there are times where you got to do things differently. So anyway, so I'm sweating my ass off over there. And I mean profusely. I mean, it's just coming down off my face and my head almost like I'm taking a shower. My, my cap is soaked. Uh, the ball cap I'm wearing, my my shirt, long sleeve shirt, so you know to prevent sunburn and all that other stuff. And uh, you know, and I came to learn later that you know long sleeves also help for you know perspiration and one thing or another. And, it, and and there are a lot of positive benefits to long sleeves. And to this day, I still wear long sleeves, even if I've got a short sleeve shirt over it. I almost always wear long sleeves out there in the sun. So anyway, so I'm sweating my ass off in my shirt, my long sleeve five eleven shirt is i mean it is no joke it is literally soaked there is no part of that shirt that is not wet and i mean wet so much so because it was tucked in um that down uh below the the pockets in your trousers okay at that line where that inner liner for those pockets is about that line all the way around was soaking wet also. I mean, I looked like from that point up, I had just come out of the shower. And guys were like, holy crap. And then, you know, insisting that I take a break, I get in this in the shade and hydrate because they knew what was going to happen if I didn't. So long story short, they conned me into it. And uh, the water, these were, I think, as I recollect, at that time, this this incident specifically, one and a half liter bottles. Okay, so if you've ever seen a 1.5 liter water bottle, that's what we had out there on these uh, pallets. And they were, I don't know, six high or 12 high, whatever they were. And they were shrink wrapped. Uh, and sometimes pallets would be atop pallets. So this water is out there in the heat of the day. And we're talking afternoon, so maybe 1 or 2 or 3 p.m., and the water, you know, the jugs, they're somewhere between warm and hot. And these guys are, you know, insisting that I pour some of it over my head to help cool me off. So this is how hot I was. That water was hot. When I poured it over my head, it felt cold. I mean, it was like, whoo! I mean, like, jump back cold. That's how hot and over superheated I was. Okay. So it took me a little time, but finally... I started cooling down. I stripped off that. They called me into taking off that that the uh, cover shirt, as we came to know it later. Uh, so that long sleeve came off just in my T-shirt so until I cooled down, and and a lot of this uh, the moisture evaporated. 
you know, and then, you know, we got back to business as usual. So it took, you know, an hour or two, um, and maybe even three hours. But for the rest of the day, they kind of wanted me to take it easy. And I did, uh, begrudgingly. I didn't want to. That's just the way I am. But I did because there was something inside me told me, you know, I probably should listen to all these voices of experience because these guys are not mad at me. They're actually trying to help me because they see what's coming and they know what's going to happen if I don't. So long story short, uh, I learned a lot of <laughs> lessons there. One, uh, let's go get some Under Armour. <laughs> okay, that made a huge difference. And I remember when I first heard that term, it was like, Under Armour. You know, I forget who I was talking to. Maybe it was one of my brothers talking to him. I think it was on the phone. It might have been a Skype call. And uh, I was saying, hey, you know, do you, if you, and uh, there was a friend of his, and I won't mention his last name, but his first name is Dan. And uh, he's retired Army. And rumor has it, and I don't know that this is the case, but it probably is so, that he had uh, some sort of consultation hand in one of the books that Tom Clancy wrote. Uh, and I don't recollect the title of that book, but we're talking probably late 80s, early 90s. Anyway, uh, so, and he said, yeah, he says, Dan says, get Under Armour. And I'm thinking, Under Armour? <laughs> you know what I'm thinking, Armour? Who the, <laughs> what are you talking? Anyway, so uh, I, fi- I found out about Under Armour told the wife about it. They were kind of expensive. I mean, more than what we were used to paying for, you know, cotton underwear. Uh, but it paid off handsomely. I mean, the, the return was just, I mean, wow, night and day difference. You can't, I mean, you know what I'm talking about if you've been there. Okay, so Under Armour. So I learned about Under Armour. I learned to hydrate <laughs> even when I didn't think I needed it. You know, and, and that was another thing. I mean, it was just, you could drink 1.5 liter bottles of water all day long and you did not have to urinate that was just mystifying mystifying but that's how much energy your body is releasing exerting absorbing deflecting reflecting i mean you are perspiring that much but you it is so hot and so dry you don't recognize it you don't notice it you don't see it Unless you are overly exerting yourself like I was that day. Now, I had plenty of days where I exerted myself and, and perspired and parts of my clothing were, were wet or soaked or whatever. But never was it ever that bad again. Uh, so that was a lesson I learned. Uh, you know, and speaking of hydration, you know, people, you know, people would, you know, Gatorade. And now you got all kinds of um, hydrating liquids out there that you can choose from. And, and you can overdo the Gatorade. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. We saw it all the time where, where guys, gals would go out there and they would drink Gatorade after Gatorade after Gatorade. Not necessarily neglecting water, but more Gatorade than water. They're not getting enough water. And they would have problems from that. Guys would have problems from drinking too many energy drinks. The Monsters, the Red Bulls, the whatever, uh, the Rippets. Um so just go down the list, you know, so one thing I found out, in, and you talk with the medics and you go through some of these courses that they give you, whether it's um, the combat lifesaver course, the advanced first aid courses that you take, and, and, and many others, but you realize that there's ways that you can put back those essential gotta-have-it nutrients and elements back in your body without going to Gatorade and, and all the other stuff. And at one point, it, it hit home, and this is a little bit forward, but I was in Iraq, and I was instructing and training these, the guard force out there at the CCP, 
and among a great many other things I was doing with them, uh, you know, because I, I wanted these guys to be prepared, but I don't want to jump too far ahead. It's easy to do. But the thing is, is that they, I saw what they were doing and they were drinking way too much Gatorade and yada, yada. And I finally said to one of them, I think it was one of their sergeants or the sergeant major. And I said, you know, you can, and I, maybe it was a couple of their other guys, but it was just a group of them. And I said, look, here's uh, down and dirty. I said, it's not perfect, but not too many people are going to argue with it because it's practical and it works. So take your jug of water, pour some of it out, you know, not a lot, but pour some of it out. Take a couple or a few salt packets that you get from the DFAC, couple or a few packets of sugar, pour it all in there, cap it, shake it up really, really, really good and drink it. And I said, do and I said, depending on how hot it is and how much you're exerting yourself, one, two or three of those. But, you know, I said, there you go. You're essentially putting back in what you're losing. Uh, I'm not. And I said, I'm not saying don't drink the Gatorade. Don't drink the other sport hydration drinks, but you don't need them. You can do that because they were complaining about, you know, access to defects because a lot of the foreign guard force did not have access to the defects. And some of us would bring them stuff as we could, but it's like, I mean, get real. When you got 50 or 100 or two or 300 of these guys that you're responsible for, you can't grab that much Gatorade and other stuff and sugar and salt and take them out to them. So, but they still have access to sugars and salts and all the other things. So I was just trying to show them and say, look, here's a way that you can help mitigate the effects of being out here. And, and not have to worry that you don't have Gatorade because this will work. And then when you get back to your shack or whatever, you know. So that was, that was guess what I'm trying to say is that was an eye-opener there in Kuwait uh, the first few months I was there when I had that incident. But, it, again, the experience factor. Um, book knowledge is great, okay. But book knowledge is just a starting point. It's a good starting point, but that's all it is. Okay, so if you're coming out of college with your fancy four-year degree or your master's degree or your PhD, and that's pretty much all you've done, and now you're going to go hit the world and you're going to teach everybody everything and whiz-bang us with your brilliant knowledge, well, that's great. But though that's just the information that you have gleaned from the books that you have read, from the papers that you have read, from the lectures you have heard. But that's it. There is absolutely no practical application to any of that yet. So go out in the field. Put it to use and find out what actually works and what doesn't. And that's kind of what we mean when we're talking about practical application, practical effects, what actually works and what doesn't. It may not look pretty. It may not be Gucci, but it works. And that's what counts. So conversely, <laughs> life as a private security contractor. Again, in the Middle East or in the MENA region, okay, at night, particularly in the winter, it can get pretty cool. Uh, in fact, I think I've mentioned before, and it's true, uh, some, maybe many of us remember or have seen the same thing, stuff can freeze, okay? So you go from temperatures in the daytime, 110, 120, 130, 140 degrees, in the winter, uh, it might be 80s or 90s, or, you know, during the winter time, during daylight hours, it might be 80s and 90s, okay? So it still feels cool. Um, some might even call it cold because you're so used to that hot, that heat. Okay. Uh, but at night you're talking temperatures dropping down to the fifties, the forties, the thirties, and I'm talking Fahrenheit here, not Celsius. 
Okay, so uh, so conversely, you got to remember to take with you in your backpack or whatever you're taking with you, your vehicle. You know, your call it your thermal underwear, your your thermal socks, um, your hand warmers, your gloves, your your warm coat, your your winter hat. Okay, so you learn to take these things and have them with you. And, and we've heard it before, and we'll hear it again. But that's where you know the whole thing about layering really makes a difference. And that's when it when when you in practical terms you go ah, I get it. Okay, because in the morning you suit up, you're nice and warm. You go out there as the day drags on. The temperatures get up in the 80s and the 90s in the wintertime, maybe even the, just as much as the 70s. Um, and, you know, you strip the stuff down, but at least you're not out there naked. You still have a uniform on or whatever it is you're wearing, your suit, but you're not hot. Neither are you cold. But and then as the sun goes down and it starts to regress and now it's getting cold again, your stuff is there. You can put it back on similar thing in the summer and i've often said i'd rather be cold in the winter because you can always put this stuff on in the summertime there's only so much you can do to mitigate that short of air conditioning okay uh because you know let's face it uh, most contracts you can't run around out there in in beach shorts and you can't strip off your shirt you know so you can't just run around with your flip-flops or your thongs you know so uh at some point you just got to suck it up and take it you gotta you know your body will acclimate and then again it's the mindset you just gotta you know put it out of your mind yeah recognize it accept it it's hot you're sweating whatever but then once you've acknowledged it move on okay so pretty much anything and there's a term we used called embrace the suck okay and that probably came around maybe earlier but the first time i heard it was about the time that the first gulf war started so uh you know embrace the suck so i'm just saying whether it's in your home country in your city at your job whatever okay there's always something to be grateful for there's always a silver lining somewhere but embrace the suck Accept it, acknowledge it, embrace it, move on, carry on, lift your head up, focus on what's in front of you, and it's really not that bad, okay? Unless you are truly out there on your own and you have to scrounge for everything, that's a different story. But chances are if you're on contract, that isn't happening and it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's only because you're a glutton for punishment and you decide to go outside and do things you weren't supposed to do on your own because... You're an adventurous person. And there's a story, too, <laughs> where I'm leading. Um, I won't mention the guy's name because I don't want to embarrass him. I still like the guy. Uh, we kind of had a falling out because uh, there was a lot of stuff going on in Afghanistan at that time. And and I have I was on some – most of the contracts and most of the companies I worked for were good contracts, good companies. Um, again, it came down to me and my mindset. But and, – and, and I've got some friends out there that, that say, man, things these days – it's just like everything else we read in here. It's a big shit show. It's not like it used to be, Scott. Be glad you're not over here anymore because you would absolutely flip out. You would lose your shit and yada, yada, yada. And I probably would. But um, there are people out there that, when, especially when they come out of the military, okay, they're, they're not used to that civilian mindset. Things are different. You can't just go do anything and everything you want to do anymore. This is not the Wild West. If you're in a Wild West sense, setting then maybe you can but still 
you got to be careful where you go, what you do, what you say, because your actions can either directly or indirectly have a negative impact on the people that you're otherwise working with, working for. Okay, so there's really no cut and dry on that. You know, it just depends on where you're at, what you're doing. But again, um, so this guy wanted to he he was an adventurous adventurous kind of guy and he wanted to get out because you know and i've said this before and you've probably even heard it uh the first time i was in afghanistan i remember looking around and within a week or two i remember remarking to one of the guys i was working with i said man look at this place if you could get rid of the terrorism if you could get rid of the wars this would be an outdoors men's paradise this would be a an adventurous vacationers paradise look at this place these mountains these valleys in the summertime it gets a little brown down there but in the wintertime in the fall it can be green i said you got snow up in the mountains i said it's beautiful it's it's probably some of the most ruggedly beautiful terrain you can find and and he agreed and and many to most agreed with that assertion you know if you could get rid of the terrorism and if you could get rid of the wars it would be and sure enough, there was a time when, when parts of Afghanistan, Kabul, for example, uh, was a vacationer's getaway. I mean, people went there. I mean, that they booked vacations, and, and, the, and we were welcome there. Uh, not so much anymore, of course. Uh, and I don't mean to digress, so kind of back on point here. So this fellow, um, he, he was fairly fresh out of the Army. Uh, I don't remember if he was a sergeant or staff sergeant when he got out. Um, but he was an, he was a, an outdoors kind of adventurous kind of guy and he wanted to go out and he wanted to, and he was talking and letting guys, uh, that were on the ground there with us know that he was going to, you know, go out, go off the base and go up in the hills and the mountains and do hiking and whatever it is, skiing and whatever else he wanted to do. And for the most part, most of the guys, cause we weren't a, a, a terribly large team there. But most of the guys were in support of it, you know. And I thought, well, I mean, emotionally and mentally, I'm right there with you. Practically speaking, however, not a good thing. Because for one thing, you've been explicitly told by the company not to get off the base unless you have orders to get off the base, unless there's a mission or we're told to go somewhere. Okay, So you can't just sneak off the base, go out there with your stuff, and do what you want to do for a few days, even if you have those days off. And, you know, he was, you know, moderately, you know, respectful about it. But his retort was, why not? Why can't I? I'm a civilian. And I said, exactly, because you're a civilian. Okay, that's not your mission. Your mission is because if you go out there and pray tell anything should happen to you, whether you just by sheer happenstance get lost, okay, or you come into trouble, okay, whether by your own doings or not, I said, someone's going to have to come out and find you. Someone's going to have to come rescue your ass. Okay. So you can't just do that. You've got to let people know, which means you need to go through the process. And I won't go through the whole process, but basically, you know, you, there was a, there was a process by which people knew that you were leaving the base and they knew where you were going. They knew when you'd be back because you're writing this all down on the trip ticket. Okay. Uh, they had your call sign. They had everything, whatever. Okay, so and th so they had a time frame. So if something happened 
and they couldn't get a hold of you, or you weren't back when you're supposed to, they could at least look at that ticket and say, okay, so this is the time he left. This is the route he was going to take. This is where he was going, and this is when he should have been back. So at least they know where to start looking. Okay, And I told him this stuff. And I don't remember how it actually played out. Um, I don't recall if he, I think he attempted or tried to, but it didn't work. Uh, and it got back uh, probably through various channels. Uh, no, I didn't rat him out. I was like, look, dude, if you want to do that, okay, that's fine. That's your thing, okay? Because, but anyway, long story short, he, they found out about it. He was questioned about it. And he was spanked pretty hard about it. Uh, and as I recollect, he never, he never did go out. Uh, whether, the, whether he got it, I th he did quit. He went on to a different contract. And who knows, maybe he was satisfied and happy with that. I don't know. But, that, but that's part of what I'm saying, folks. As a private security contractor, again, it depends on where you're at. But even, it, it's almost immaterial. If your task, if your mission, if your order, if your contract, if your task order, whatever it is, is not to do this and it's not to do that, then don't do it. Because you because you risk getting yourself in trouble in more ways than one, and it can have fallout effects on other people as well. Okay. So life as a private security contractor is not all about all this revelry and partying. Yeah, there is plenty of that going on. Okay. Um, it's pretty quiet comparatively the way it was you know prior to 2007 even by 2007 and 2008 and even nine there was still a fair amount of it okay so life as a private security contract again it, it's 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 all kinds of stuff and and a, a large part of it is stuff that you don't really pay attention to or are not cognizant of um, even if it's portrayed to you because that's not the sexy, glamorous stuff that is typically portrayed that most people have in their minds about it. So, life as a private security contractor. Pretty much wrap it up with, with this one uh, for, for this episode, and I'll, I'll come back to it and, and talk some more about it because there's plenty of it to be talked about um, because there are plenty of stories out there uh, most of them are not known by most people outside that were not at least in the region or the vicinity, but there were plenty of episodes where people were gone longer than they should have, and they had to be rescued or whatever, or at the very least, someone had to go out and find them and, you know, tell them to come back. So with that said, folks, I want to thank you and everyone for taking time out of your day or your evening to listen to me talk about some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas. Thank you again to Cavic Cohen and Colin Perry, and thank you to Andres Rodriguez. Thank you to my wife, my children, and all the folks, male and female, who have been a part of my life and still are. And remember, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, folks, keep it real.